Hello, I'm Alex Rakeen. I'm a barrister at Third and Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be today to be joined today in what I have to say is quite a hot shed um, by Dr. Zoe Fritz. Uh, anyone who's listened to or seen any of these before will know that I, I really want the person I'm speaking to to introduce themselves rather than me trying to do it for them. So Zoe, over to you. Int introduce yourself, please. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to come and talk to you. So I am a doctor. I am a consultant physician in acute medicine at Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge. So I deal with acutely sick patients, uh, essentially making their diagnosis and trying to stabilise them and get them better and get them home, hopefully, and if not, send them on to another speciality. I did quite a lot of work in intensive care while I was training as well. So I'm familiar with the very sick patients and the decisions that need to be made in that context. And as I was training, I became very interested in all kinds of ethical questions. And I think I can now add a second label to myself that I am an empirical ethicist. So I spend 40% of my time doing medicine as a doctor and 60% of my time doing research in empirical ethics at the University of Cambridge and teaching here as well. Uh, and one of the main things I've done work on over the last 13 years or so is looking at resuscitation decisions, how they're made, how they're considered, how patients and doctors discuss them, how they get documented, what impact they might have. And a lot of the work I've done has contributed to the respect process. So I now also work uh, with the Resuscitation Council UK and I chair their subcommittee on respect. So I really want to talk about respect a little bit more, a little bit later, but just actually, really, I'm, I'm just interested in what was it which made you think I want to start thinking about resuscitation decisions? And what was it which went, oh, I need to think about this and look into it? So there were a couple of um, tipping point moments for me, I think. So I, I think I've always been someone who questions how we do things. Uh, I think that's really important. And I would love everybody. I, I teach my medical students to kind of say, let's challenge the premises of how we do things. I think there were there were two particular scenarios, which I've, I've talked about before. So apologies if I've told you about these before or anyone else. But they were, I guess, my, my trigger moments. So the first was... I was a, a training doctor at a district general hospital coming on to take over the overnight shift. This was in the days when I was in, basically in charge of the whole hospital as a junior doctor, um, which is not the case anymore. I hasten to reassure people. And I said, who are the, any sick patients? And the outreach nurse, who is the kind of in-charge nurse going out, said, oh, there are quite a few, but they're all DNAR. And I said, just because they have a resuscitation decision doesn't mean I don't need to know about them and go and review them. And the outgoing registrar said, DNAR, that stands for doesn't need another review. And he was definitely joking. Like it was definitely a quip, but it was the quip that was only a half joke, as we all know those things. And, and it made me kind of think, we all know a little bit that these patients with, with do not resuscitate uh, documentation, that that is conflated with don't escalate in the middle of the night. And it absolutely shouldn't be. It needs to be a distinct uh, decision that do not resuscitate which absolutely might be what that patient wants or it might be that it's not clinically appropriate to attempt resuscitation that needs to be respected but you also need to make sure it's not just tied up with this patient's about to die because a lot of patients who are quite otherwise well might not benefit from resuscitation so that was my first trigger point like well wait a minute this red form do not resuscitate is way too blunt an instrument and it's being conflated way too much with other things and then the second trigger point was, uh, again, as a registrar, but in another hospital, on a Friday evening, I saw a little old, very sweet lady who was completely independent in her early 90s, who'd come in with a pneumonia and was really struggling for breath. And I'd put her on oxygen and I'd given her antibiotics and I'd done all the, all the things that you do to try and get someone better. 
But I was worried that she might deteriorate and might need to go to intensive care, if only for 24 or 48 hours to let the antibiotics work. But I also, looking at her, and this was before the Tracy case, so this was at a time where we did not routinely discuss CPR decisions with patients, and there was certainly no legal obligation to do so. Looking at her, I didn't think that she would survive attempted CPR. She was very frail, she had no muscle mass, and um, I thought that to attempt CPR on her would, would be to do her disservice. Um, it would be to deprive her potentially of a, of a peaceful death. Um, and so I wanted to write a DNA CPR on her. I thought that was the right thing for her at that time. But I was very nervous that if I did so, bearing in mind the conversation I'd had a few months prior, that she wouldn't go to ICU if she needed it. So I took this red form and I wrote all over it, uh, you know, not for CPR, but for consideration of ICU, for ventilation for a period, all this stuff. And I, I looked at this piece of paper and thought, well, that's what we need. We need, we need something that makes this clearer about what should be given. We shouldn't just be writing people off. And what I really wanted at that time was also that we should really be talking with patients about this. Um, and I guess what was interesting was we, we, we tried, so from that, we developed this thing called the UFTO, Universal Form of Treatment Options, which was uh, looking at overall goals of care. What should we be trying to achieve with the patient? Are we trying to get them better or trying to make them feel better? Um, and then what treatments would or wouldn't be a benefit? And then the CPR decision just as a tiny piece of this, uh, whether they're for CPR or not for CPR. Um, and at that point, doctors were very resistant to having this conversation with every single patient because they were worried it would cause them harm. And this is all pre-Tracy. Um, and as you know, UFTO was referred to in the, in the Tracy case. Um, and uh, thankfully, the Tracy case meant that we had to talk with patients about CPR. And uh, that then allowed, I guess, a second paradigm shift. So I would say the first paradigm shift was just not talking about just CPR, but talking about overall goals of care. And then with Tracy, we were allowed a second paradigm shift, which was let's start this conversation with a discussion with the patient about what is important to them. And, and so there we go from DNA CPR to a goals of care conversation to a what's important to you conversation. Oh, beautifully elegant analysis of the story. And I, thank you so much. Before I get, I will get to respect because I really, really want to talk about it. I'm just always fascinated by why we have this, why CPR features so heavily in the kind of consciousness. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the Tracy case, which I'll put a link to at the, you know, the sort of bottom of the web page relating to this. It's not a coincidence, I think, that the Tracy case related to CPR. I, mean, it's sort of, I got my views, but I'd just be really interested in your take on why is it people think about CPR so often? So I think there's a variety of reasons. Uh, all of our hearts stop at some point. So this is a treatment that we all might potentially need, right? Um, on the other hand, all of our hearts stop at some point. And so this is a treatment that all of us might not want at some point, right? Because we, so it's, it's, it's on both sides. It's like, well, this, this is gonna happen and we're gonna have to think about it. I think the media has uh, some responsibility for the relationship with uh, CPR. So. I can't actually remember the, the author's names, but there's a great uh, New England Journal of Medicine article where a dedicated team of doctors looked through all of the episodes of three TV series. It was ER and Chicago Hope. This was in the in the 90s or the thousands and a third one. And they looked at the survival rates from CPR and they're all beautifully dramatized, but the survival rates are at the 60%, whereas obviously the actual survival rates are less than 15%. And even that's misleading because it's less than 15% in those in whom CPR is attempted. 
Whereas actually we make decisions that we shouldn't attempt CPR in people for whom their heart stopping is the final part of the dying pathway because actually they've died from their heart failure or their cancer or whatever else and attempting to restart the heart isn't gonna reverse all the rest of the pathology. And so I think people become very emotional about it because in talking about not doing CPR, somehow they think that means we're not going to try and save their life. Whereas actually, of course, we're gonna try and save their life if that's what they want to reverse anything that's reversible. It's just, we won't try and restart your heart if we think that wouldn't work. So I think the reason it gets separated from everything else, and it is a medical treatment, like any other medical treatment, and actually part of the UFTO discussion and respect which we'll get onto was saying this is a continuum of which CPR is the final kind of point. But I think the reason it's been separated is, is because, uh, because in people's minds, it's completely applicable to them, whereas we might not all need a transplant or, um, I don't know, a, a, a nebulizer or any other kind of treatment and we will all potentially our hearts will stop and then the other thing as i say is media portrayals which dramatize it and then third thing is of course if you're young and or, or not even young if you're completely otherwise healthy and your heart does suddenly stop this is an amazing life-saving thing that we can do so we had the danish footballer yeah. recently you know there's massive effort on restart a heart which is entirely appropriate we teach children first aid there is this whole second narrative, which is extremely important, which is we should all be equipped to, in an emergency, if someone's heart suddenly stops, try and rescue them. And I guess the distinction is that heart suddenly stopping to heart stopping is the final part of the dying pathway. And I don't know whether we need different language for it or what, but that's that's why I think there's a tug. No, well, that's, thank you. Thank you so much. I've, and I've been holding off getting onto respect because I, there are, I just really wanted to dig into those, those kind of those aspects, but. Just give a pen picture of respect for somebody who's never heard of it, because I'm sure that many people listening to or watching this will, will go, what is this doctor talking about? What is this respect business? So just your chance yeah. to kind of pitch it in the elevator pitch. All right, the elevator pitch. So respect stands for recommended summary plan for emergency care and treatment. And I have to say the acronym was hard one. It took a long time, like maybe three years to come up with something that did what it said on the tin. Um, and it's about respecting patient preferences and respecting clinical judgment. And the, the quick summary of how it works is the idea is it's, it's an approach, it's a process, which can be for anybody, um, but particularly of relevance to those approaching the end of life or who have significant comorbidities or who feel strongly about outcomes, health outcomes they wouldn't want. And the process is, starts with, uh, I would say it's all about shared understanding. That's my I think that's the underlying principle underneath respect. So the first thing is to establish a shared understanding between the patient and the clinician about the problems the patient has. So that might be their diagnoses and making sure that, for example, if the clinician has said you have heart failure, that they understand that they're not going to get better from that heart failure and what their prognosis might be. It might be a shared understanding the other way. So patient with multiple sclerosis, for example, explaining to the doctor that actually they're very happy with their bed bound state, thank you very much. And they really could, they value their quality of life and please don't make any judgments about, uh, you know, um, make any judgments, I don't mean that. Please don't um, project any value judgments about how they're leading their life. So shared understanding of the patient's condition, then shared understanding of what the patient uh, kind of values and fears in terms of health outcomes. So
So um, that might be a patient saying, what's most important to me is keeping my marbles. I get that a lot. It might be a patient saying, I don't want a lingering death. If my time comes, let me go. It might be very specific. I've had patients saying, you know, so long as I can wash myself a bit and recognize my daughter, keep me going. Um, uh, but it's understanding what it is that a patient would or wouldn't want. And with that information, then it's a shared understanding of what treatments would be of benefit to that patient in the event where they lost capacity and weren't able to say so themselves. So the, the first two parts are, are, are really patient-led, although they're shared understanding. And then this third part is saying, the clinician might say, well, given that you've told me that so long as you can wash yourself and recognize your daughter, you're very happy, I actually think we should try all treatments uh, for you, which might include attempting CPR. Um, but if you were on ICU for a prolonged period and I thought you weren't going to be able to recover to a state you value, then I would say we should, we should stop and let you go peacefully. Or it might be saying, well, in the context of you saying you don't want a lingering death and you're given that you've got some renal failure and some COPD, which we established earlier, um, I think that we should say we will give you all the treatments in hospital that uh, in, in, on a ward that uh, might quickly reverse any problems. So back to my 92 year old, we'll give you antibiotics for pneumonia, um, but we wouldn't take you to intensive care. Let's forget my 92 year old. We wouldn't take you to intensive care, but you're on a ventilator because that would be a very high risk of giving you a lingering death. And it might include hearing someone with a cancer saying, um, you know, I really don't want to go back into hospital. I've had enough. And then saying, okay, well, actually that's a trigger for us making sure you have whatever treatments you need at home, just in case medications, very clear information for the ambulance clinicians. And, and, and obviously not in that context for attempted CPR. So that process then gets translated onto a one page. And thank you, Alex, for all of your work on this. So I guess on the, on the conflict of interest side, we need to tell you that Alex and I have worked together on respect for a long time. And Alex has managed to help us make the language uh, legally acceptable and succinct, which is not always, they don't always go hand in hand. Um, uh, so Alex, mazel tov to you. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's a one page two sided document that summarizes all of that and is recognized throughout the UK and it's across most of England now, uh, or many parts of England, that's not 70% of counties in England have partially or totally adopted it. It's going across Scotland, across Northern Ireland and Wales is, is not currently interested in using it. It's a really uh, thank you for flagging the conflict point, which I, <laughs> I would have done at some point, but I think it's really important to bring to bring that out. I mean, what you described is is a really important to me. Is this a really important conversation aspect and this process aspect? I mean, before we get to thinking about how this is challenges which the pandemic has posed, I just wonder whether I can just sort of tease out with you how you think about it in the context of somebody who currently doesn't have capacity to participate in that conversation. Because obviously you've been describing the conversation with the person who's currently got capacity to participate. And obviously this is one of the bits I should say we multiple discussions about exactly what capacity we are talking about here. And I, from my view, it's, it's pretty clear it's the capacity to participate in the discussion. So the individual, the person who doesn't currently have capacity to participate, I'm sort of interested in your take on what you need to do to go through that process of you know getting to that shared understanding point. So you are obviously completely correct that it's much harder to have to come to a confident decision that you're documenting what that particular individual would want if you aren't able to directly talk with that individual while they have capacity. Um, however, 
and, well, and, that, and that is one of the reasons that we're encouraging people to have a respect conversation early, right? Because it, it's infinitely better to have had that conversation yourself with the doctor and to have informed your relatives that those are the things that you want and, and accept that you might change your mind later. But at least you can say you have a starting point at this point. This person said this. So I think my number one thing would be let's all try. And I know, uh, for example, our colleagues in Compassion and Dying are desperately trying to get many more people to write uh, advanced decisions to refuse treatment and all kinds of things to be able to document what it is they would want. I think respect is a is a good start for doing that. So I know that doesn't answer your question, but I would like to, to um, pitch, pitch that we should all be having some respect conversations early. If, however, that hasn't happened, um, then it is the responsibility of the clinician to complete uh, the respect process with those close to the person. Um, and uh, obviously, sometimes that will be a family member, sometimes it will be a friend, some, sometimes it will be very difficult to find someone. If we start with when we've got someone, then the conversation is about shared understanding again of what, what's going on with that patient. And then a shared understanding of what do you think this patient, this person would have most most valued and feared. And then and 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 then you continue in the same way. So in the context of that, this is this is what I would recommend. Um, obviously extremely important to document that you've done that. Um, I would say one of the pitfalls in hospital, and I know we're getting to the pandemic, but obviously with, with reduced visiting, it was it was very difficult. And a lot of these phone, a lot of these conversations were happening uh, over the phone. Um, well, is when you can't get hold of someone immediately. So you have a patient who has come into hospital um, who doesn't have capacity, and it's clear you're going to have to make some decisions about what treatments would or wouldn't be of benefit to them. And you phone someone and there's no answer and the patient's deteriorating and you, you, you have to make, you, you can't make a hold, you have to make a holding, you know, you have to make some kind of decision now because they might get sicker. Um, and I think one of the kind of, I guess, almost administrative difficulties and with lots of shift patterns is sometimes we make those those decisions and plan to keep on trying to get hold of relatives but then events overtake you and and you're busy doing other things and so on and so forth and there's a handover I think that's a risk um, in terms of how, how do we mitigate against that risk so that we can make sure that we continue to try and reach people who, who knew that patient um, yes because there's certainly one can see the risk or a provisional decision, which if you ask you, Dr. Fritz, you'd know, I know this is provisional because it's on the basis of incomplete information and it badly needs to be revisited X, you know, when we've done X, Y, Z, and then if it falls between the cracks, yeah, as it were, then something can stick. And I think that, you know, we can, I think it's important, I think, to flag that up. Yeah. yeah. So I do, I do want to, I mean, I really wanted to kind of- Sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you, Alex, because I'm going to say one other thing and you can correct me if I'm using the wrong- uh, language, but obviously from Winspear, it's actually legally uh, required that we try and contact those close to the patient unless, and I think the language was, I think it was so long as it is practicable and appropriate to do so or, or, or something like that, you can, you can correct me. Yes, but, I mean, Winspear is an interesting case because the judge was suggesting that the sort of conversation you were having, I mean, obviously in, in Winspear it was about CPR, purely yeah. CPR, was suggesting that that making of the decision to recommend or not recommend CPR was itself a best interest decision, which I think is all sorts of legally, is that really the case? But undoubtedly the spirit of it must apply, which is if it's practicable and appropriate to contact somebody, you might be able to inform your decision making. Yeah. Why well, A, well, why on earth wouldn't you? And right. B, you're on very thin ice, then defending that. 
Yeah. And what I the reason I wanted to bring it in is because what I say to my students and junior doctors is if someone's sick enough that you are thinking that you need to urgently do this, you should be contacting the relatives anyway. Like that is just a kind of no brainer, because if they're sick, if you're worried they're deteriorating, then you may not be able to save them. But the one thing you might be able to do is get someone in by their side, which will make them feel better and make their relatives feel better. And if they die, it will make the whole mourning period feel better. So um, I don't know if you know medicine, we say A, B, C, D, that's like airway, breathing, circulation. So I say A, B, C, D, E, F is for phone the family. I know phone begins with a P, H, but uh, F is for phone the family. And I say, you know, you should be doing that anyway. You should, you should be getting a nurse to do it if you're too busy actually, you know, putting up drugs or doing whatever. Um, uh, phone the family and then they're coming in and then you can have the conversation. I think it is extremely rare for it not to be practicable or appropriate to have a conversation with someone. And I have only once uh, written, done that and written in the notes and it was where someone's only living, it was very middle, like early hours of the morning, only living relative was in Ireland and was in their nineties. And I really didn't think it was appropriate or practicable to phone them up in the middle of the night to have this conversation that wasn't gonna change things. So I was very comfortable writing that. Yeah, uh, no. actually that's incredibly, helpful. I mean, that's really sort of useful for people listening to this thinking, well, where on the spectrum of practicability and appropriateness is that line? And obviously can't give legal advice, but that, that you can see where that sits in terms of that spectrum. So I really could talk to you all day and I would love to, but we're running, beginning to run tight on time, but I do really want to get it in probably rather abbreviated fashion, but at least just get a sense from you of the kind of respect process under pressure in the pandemic, because I mean, just to locate it, at least for myself, we've had a lot of evidence of, put it neutrally, serious difficulty in relation to making DNA CPR decisions. I mean, serious problems arising, blanket DNA CPR decisions, matters like that, CQCs obviously being involved. I mean, there are a lot of people very legitimately, I mean, from the various things I've done, entirely legitimately stressed about it. And I'm just interested in your sense of, and fully appreciating your speaking entirely in a personal capacity, your sense of how well the kind of, the process of thinking about respect documentation has, has worked in the pandemic, A, and B, your thoughts on how the challenges which have been, you know, the, the stress in relation to CPR decision-making or the, the, the challenges there may be impacting on how people think about respect. So sort of respect under pressure. Uh, so I was working during the pandemic on the COVID admissions unit at Cambridge. I should say I'm just speaking obviously completely in my own capacity, not in any other. Um, and I think uh, those phone conversations, which I was often having, were very, very difficult at the beginning. And I, I mean, I live and breathe respect, right? Like if anyone's going to be confident having a respect conversation, I would hope it would be me. And I was finding them hard because I was talking to people on the phone who had never met in the context of a pandemic where there was a lot of fear about uh, rationing um, and a lot of subtext about is the reason that you're having this conversation because you're really doing what's best for my mother or whoever it was, or is it because you really want the ventilator for someone else? I think that was, I think that was uh, an underlying and reasonable fear, reasonable in terms of completely logical fear, given everything that was being talked about. Um, I think that the question of blanket DNA CPRs is obviously a completely unethical and a bit, but you don't need, I mean, clearly, clearly it was inappropriate. And um, I think it, 
your question, I think, was how, how much respect got pulled into that or how much respect? Yes. I mean, to the extent to which, you know, a very high level of concern in relation to people thinking CPR is being withheld from people inappropriately, say, or being you know, knocking back onto a process which in part is designed to locate CPR in a much bigger context. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there were two things that happened. One was that actually there was as much emphasis on ventilators and on being transferred to hospital as there was on CPR. So in a way, it broadened the conversation, actually. Um, so I felt like there was a lot of discussion about whether people should be taken into hospital, which at the beginning of the pandemic was an, was an appropriate question to be asking when we had no treatments for COVID. Um, and it looked like the prognosis, well, the prognosis, if you were very frail, was very poor. So this, this question of actually, are you better looked after at home where your family can be with you? It was a reasonable question to be asking. Um, and in a way that was a respect question. So I, I don't know if I'm just rose tinted spectacle, but I think that those places that already had respect were already primed for those kinds of conversations. What is most important to you? Okay, well then let's make sure this, this, and this happens and this, this, and this doesn't. And I think that um, the DNA CPR problem of it just being about that last moment means that all the other stuff was lost. And so, again, I don't, I'm, I'm a perpetual Pollyanna, but I, I think that respect would prevent people from feeling written off precisely because it puts the patient at the center and it's saying, let's have a shared understanding um, and let's make sure that we know what you value so that we make sure that the treatments you get are the ones that are commensurate with what you want. And CPR is only a tiny bit of that. So I, I don't feel respect was tarred. I don't know if I'm being completely blinkered about that. Um, in terms of the CQC report, they actively talked about respect as being good practice. Um, and I anecdotally, the information I've had is that those, for example, nursing homes that already had respect were able to have much better conversations with the families of the people in them because they had anticipated this and they'd already got decisions. There was no need to do blanket, sudden knee-jerk conversations because they'd already, they'd already had holistic conversations. Yeah. I mean, I think that in a way that chimes with certainly the, the sense one gets across a lot of things in the pandemic, which is those organisations which had systems to think about, for instance, capacity issues or think about how to do best interest decision-making were able to, yes, they're under a lot of stress, but we're not having to simultaneously invent a system and then apply it under stress. Yeah. And I think yes, yes. Yeah. And I mean, interestingly, during the pandemic, so we already had version three of Respect Ready pre-pandemic, where instead of asking clinicians to focus either on life-sustaining treatment, saying, you know, is the, go is the overall goal life-sustaining treatment or is the overall goal comfort? We have this medium one, which is saying, you know, find a balance between the two. And we decided it was too complicated to introduce that new change while everyone was under pressure, because actually you don't want, while you're under pressure, you want something you're comfortable with. But um, we've, we've introduced version three now and had very positive feedback. Yeah. Well, Zoe, thank you. I mean, there are so many things, rabbit holes I'd have loved to have gone down in that conversation, but this just a really fantastic overview of, of above all, actually the underpinning thinking, because to me, it's the kind of, mindset and the thinking process which is what leads to actually this producing good outcomes as opposed to just generating a bit of paper and so thank you for giving that 
really excellent insight. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Lovely to talk to you.